Welcome to Scripture Uncovered, a podcast on the Bible brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Now, time for the program. Here's your host, Dr. Bill Creasy. Hello, gang. Bill Creasy here with this week's episode of Scripture Uncovered. Last week, we talked about St. Paul in Arabia. And this week, I feel like I'm in Arabia. I'm recording this podcast on Friday. And here in San Diego, we're having our first 100-degree day of summer. Holy cow! We don't get many of those, but we sure have one today. Now, I know, I know. Our friends over in Phoenix, Arizona are probably laughing at me right now. I just looked online, and they're clocking in at 110. And that will continue for them every day for most of the summer. I know. I spent a year of my Marine Corps days in Yuma, Arizona, and I did my undergraduate and master's degree at Arizona State University. So I know what 110 feels like. But hey, that's why I live in San Diego. Oh well. But you know, I like summer. I remember growing up in Pittsburgh, and right after Memorial Day, it was a short run-up to mid-June when school got out. That last day of school was so exciting. In elementary school, we only had a half day on that final day. And we had to clean out our desks, take posters off the classroom walls, wash the blackboards, clap the erasers, and wait around for the bell to ring. And when it did, we dashed out of the classroom, darted across the playground, leaping and shouting, and we made our way home, running and fooling around. And on the way, we stopped at Tony the Barber's for our summer buzz cuts, bought a pink jar of butch wax to make our crew cuts stand up on end, and that pink, smelly butch wax attracted bees. But we had a whole long summer stretched out in front of us, nothing but fun, until Labor Day, and then, sadly, back to school. Those were truly idyllic days. Back then, I'd wake up at daybreak, get on my bike, and head out for adventure. The only rule was, be home before the streetlights came on. No play dates, no adult supervision, just sweet freedom. Me, my dog, pal, and a handful of kids from the block. They were wonderful days. Now, perhaps colored by memory that tends to erase the shadows and accentuate the, the sunlight. But great days. And now, all these decades later, summer is not as carefree as it used to be. But it's still pretty darn nice. Last week, we finished our Logos Spring Quarter, a study of St. Paul's prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Every time I teach St. Paul, I marvel at his insight, his commitment, and his tireless energy. My goodness, across nearly 20 years, he traveled throughout the Roman Empire logging well over 10,000 miles by sea and land, 
taking the gospel message to the Gentile world. During that time, St. Paul wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. He evangelized all of Asia Minor and a good chunk of Southern Europe. Now that's no slacker, our Paul. Until about AD 50, no one thought that the gospel had anything whatsoever to do with Gentiles. The embryonic church was purely a minor movement within Judaism. And yes, thanks to St. Peter, the Roman centurion Cornelius and his family became believers. But that was aberrant. It wasn't until the Council of Jerusalem in AD 50 that Gentiles were truly welcome in the church and they were not required to observe the Mosaic law, including the dietary restrictions, the liturgical celebrations, and circumcision. <laughs> that was a big one. The decision to welcome Gentiles into the church without requiring them to observe the Mosaic law enabled Christianity to move from being a minor sect within Judaism to becoming potentially a global enterprise. And we have St. Paul to thank for that, for the most part. Well, with St. Paul's prison epistles finished, this week we begin our Logos summer session with the return from captivity. Now, as most of you know, teaching through the Bible verse by verse, I alternate between the Hebrew Scriptures, or the Old Testament, and the New Testament, back and forth, back and forth, until we finish. If we meet weekly in four 10-week quarters, each class lasting two hours, it takes a little over seven years to complete our study of Scripture. Many of my students have been with me for multiple trips through the Bible. Some have been with me for over 20 years. Monday morning in my live classes, we start the return from captivity and we'll be studying Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and Job. Now that means we've already covered Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, and 2 Chronicles. In the Christian canon of Scripture, that is a straight linear narrative that spans creation in Genesis 1 and 2 to the fall in Genesis 3, all the way through 586 BC. And what a story it is. We begin our study of Scripture with, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we have a magnificent story of a symmetrical, harmonious, and beautiful creation. And at the end of those seven movements of creation, God said it is very good. And indeed, it was very good. And then in Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the world. Now we define sin back then not as an act that we commit, but a condition that we're in, a condition of alienation and separation from God that manifests itself in outward sinful action. And with sin in the world, everything begins to unravel. Why, by the time we get to Genesis chapter 5, 
Only a couple of chapters later, we read that all the thoughts of all people were only evil all the time. So God brought the flood. He washed the board clean and he gave humanity a second chance. And by Genesis chapter 11, we were at the Tower of Babel and it happened all over again. Clearly, we could not lift ourselves up by our moral bootstraps. So God initiated the plan of redemption by choosing Abram from Ur of the Chaldeans and making an unconditional covenant with Abram, later to be called Abraham. And from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph, the story unfolded across the book of Genesis. At the end of Genesis, the Israelites are in Egypt with Joseph, a family of 73 people in all. And then we turn the page to Exodus. In Exodus, 400 years flash by, and those 73 people have grown to be a nation of 2 million. And God raises up Moses and leads the Israelites out of Egypt. Well, a thrilling story, that's for sure. 40 years in the wilderness, a generation they spend, and then enter the promised land. During that 40 years in the wilderness, God reaffirms the covenant with the people as a whole. He gives them the law. He gives them the tabernacle. And then we're ready for the conquest. In Joshua, we cross the Jordan River and begin the conquest of the promised land. Well, they don't really conquer the promised land. They subdue parts of it. It will take a while. But after Joshua, the next generation well, was a little weaker. The one after that, weaker yet. And we get to Judges. And people forgot about God. They turned their backs on him yet again. And the story continues. Judges, 13 judges, military leaders who emerged to deal with the threat, and then supposedly go back home. But once you give people a taste of power, they don't want to let go, and the judges become corrupt. Finally, the people have had it. They want a king. And in 1 Samuel, Samuel, the last of the judges, the people demand a king, and they choose Saul. Saul, well, they choose Saul because he looked like a king, but he didn't have the heart of a king. Saul fails. Well, he fails rather terribly. So God chooses a king for the Israelites, David. And David, oh, he is a king. David is a magnificent warrior. He's a tremendous king. He's a profound man of God, but he's a deeply flawed person. And maybe that's why we like him so much. Can identify with that part of David. David takes a loose confederation of 12 tribes, forges them into a united monarchy, and elevates Israel to a world, a position of world power. When David dies, Solomon comes to the throne. So we've had three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, over a more or less united monarchy. But with the death of Solomon, civil war breaks out. And we have that entire story in 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. At the end, in 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel 
is conquered by the Assyrian Empire and the people are taken captive into Assyria. By 586 BC, the southern kingdom of Judah is conquered by Babylon and they are taken captive to Babylon. At the end of that linear narrative, Israel's gone. Jerusalem lies in ashes, the temple ashes, and the people dispersed into Assyria and Babylon. Whatever happened, whatever happened to God's promise, to God's covenant, to God's unconditional covenant, Israel is my firstborn son, I will never leave you or forsake you, he said. But boy, if you were there in Babylon, you wouldn't be thinking that. You'd be thinking Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. It was over. All over. But then, something extraordinary happens. The prophet Isaiah, who worked from 740 to 686, wrote in Isaiah chapter 45 that I, God, will raise up Cyrus, my anointed one, Mashiach, Messiah, and he will set my people free and rebuild my city. Well, in 539 BC, that's exactly what happens. Cyrus the Great, king of Persia, defeats the Babylonian Empire, and he allows the Jews to return home. Not just the Jews, but all the people taken captive by Assyria and Babylon, he allows them to go home. Well, they don't all go any more than every one of your Jewish friends and neighbors on May 14, 1948, with the founding of the modern state of Israel, left the United States and moved to Jerusalem. Well, maybe a few did, the pioneers, but not many. And that was true after the Babylonian captivity in 539. Not many went back. But Ezra and Nehemiah tell the story of the return from captivity. And it is a thrilling story. We rebuild the temple in Ezra and rediscover scripture which had been lost. And in Nehemiah, we rebuild the city walls around Jerusalem. That makes Jerusalem an independent, defensible city. What a story it is. The people who return from captivity. And then we turn the page to Esther. Esther tells the story of the people who remained behind in Babylon, now Persia. Queen Esther. Oh, it's a great story too. But then at the end of Esther, we're really finished with our linear narrative. It's over. And what lesson do we learn from it? Genesis all the way through Esther, a straight linear narrative with some recapitulation. But the lesson that we learn in 25 words or less is, if you do what God says, all will go well. If you don't, it won't. And then we turn the page to Job. <laughs> Job. Job did everything God wanted, and his life was a train wreck. So you and I know that even though we read Genesis through Esther, and even though we know the lesson that if you listen to what God says, all will go well, if you don't, it won't, we know it doesn't work that way. Because you or I can do everything God wants 
and our life can be a disaster. So what in the world is that all about? And that's the book of Job. Job is really a drama in three acts, and we'll be teaching that come this summer. So it's going to be a great time. That will be our summer. Well, it's not quite as much fun as riding bikes with my dog pal trotting along beside me, the odor of butch wax wafting in the air and bees buzzing around my head. But it'll be fun. I've been blessed with wonderful students in my live classes. And I truly am in awe of the thousands of online students who follow me on audible.com and in the Logos online classroom. Last year, over 20,000 students were listening to my Audible courses. That's utterly amazing to me. If you can attend my live classes in Southern California this summer at St. Elizabeth Seton in Carlsbad on Monday morning, 9 to 11, at St. Bede the Venerable in La Cañada, north of LA, on Monday evening, 7 to 9, St. Irenaeus in Cyprus, Orange County, on Tuesday morning, 10 to noon, or Our Mother of Confidence back here in San Diego on Tuesday evening, 7 to 9, I'd love to see you there. But if you can't attend live classes on the return from captivity, because you live in, oh, say, Australia, as Tom and Rosemary do. By the way, hello out there, guys. I'm looking forward to you joining us on our January Israel Highlights Tour. I digress. You can still follow along week by week by clicking the Live Classes button on LogosBibleStudy.com and enrolling as a remote student. If you do, each week you'll get the PowerPoint presentations, over a thousand pages in total for the return from captivity, with text, photos, artwork, maps, and a lot more, as well as my recorded 50 to 60 minute lectures, freshly studio edited by my audio guru, Andrew. You'll get two of those each week. And that stuff is all yours to keep. So I hope you can join us either in a live class or as a remote student as we go through the summer together studying the return from captivity. A great summer slam. You've been listening to Scripture Uncovered, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Now, back to the program. Here's Dr. Creasy. So welcome back to our question and answer segment of Scripture Uncovered. Uh, this past week, I know it was actually earlier, uh, I received, in May, I received an email from James Sybil. And he asks, the blind man Jesus healed seems to imply that his vision is blurry and he sees people walking around like trees. Could this mean that Jesus has given the man true insight into what he's calling us to do? That is, we should be carrying, uh, cross-carrying missionaries. Well, let me turn to the story and read it to you. It's Mark 8, verses 22 to 26. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand, led him outside the village, and when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, 
do you see anything? The man looked up and he said, I see people. They, they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And then Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. So what an intriguing story. A man who was blind, Jesus heals him by spitting on him. And then the man could see people like trees walking around. Well, clearly his vision's not perfect. It's all rather blurry, just movements of shape. But then once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes and then they were open and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. I, I think the intention of the story is to show that our, our sight, our insight into, into Christ, our insight into God, our insight into knowledge is not a matter of a moment. It's a process, an ongoing process in which our sight, our understanding becomes ever more clear. We have a really good example of this over in the Gospel according to John at chapter 9. Chapter 9, 1 through 12. Once again, we have a blind man. And let me read through that story to you and talk about it as we go. And notice how the blind man's sight becomes ever more clear. Not simply his physical sight, but his insight, his knowledge, and his understanding. So I read to you from chapter 9. As he, Jesus, went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said. But this has happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So a man born blind, why did that happen? And Jesus' disciples asked, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Well, people then, and perhaps even today, attribute afflictions like blindness, like birth defects, as the result of, of some sin that uh, the parents or uh, someone committed. But Jesus said, that's not the case. In effect, he said, well, stuff happens, but given that it has, we'll use it for the glory of God. So, having said this, he once again spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, and wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed, and he came home seeing. Well, again, the spit, this time mixed with mud, wash it off, and the man had sight. Now, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed he was. Others said, no, no, it only looks like him. But he himself insisted, no, I'm the man. Well, how then were your eyes opened, they demand. 
demanded. And he replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Well, where is this man, they asked. I don't know, he said. Notice, who, who did this? He replied in verse 11, the man they call Jesus. So he identifies Jesus as the man they call Jesus. Now we move to the next part of the story. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. And of course, you don't work on the Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. The man replied, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and now I can see. Well, some of the Pharisees said, well, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. He's working on the Sabbath. And if he were from God, he would not do that. But others ask, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? I mean, healing a blind man is one thing, but healing a man born blind, that's something else entirely. And they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. Well, what do you have to say about him? Well, your eyes he opened. And the man replied, he is a prophet. Now notice, in verse 11, he replied, the man they called Jesus. Now his insight, his understanding has taken a step forward. The man replied, he is a prophet. Well, the Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? The one you say was born blind? How is it he can now see? The parents replied, well, we know he's our son and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't have a clue. Ask him, he's of age, he can speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So the second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. And he replied, well, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? What, you want to become his disciples too? Well, then they hurled insults at him and they said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, well, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. It's just never happened. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing.
There's step three. In verse 11, the man they call Jesus. In verse 17, he is a prophet. And now in verse 33, if he were not from God, he could do nothing. He's from God. Well, to this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Well, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. And in verse 38, then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And there is step four. So we have a man born blind. Jesus restores his sight, and the man identifies Jesus as the man they call Jesus. A little bit later, he identifies Jesus as a prophet. After that, he identifies Jesus as a man who came from God. And finally, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. He understood that Jesus was God enfleshed. So we have a process of, of growing understanding in this story. Now, who is the man born blind? Well, the man in the story that Jesus heals, but the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they were born blind too. And they never had their eyes open. At the end of the story, they're still blind to the truth. So we have a wonderful example here of Jesus opening a person's eyes, as in, uh, as in Mark 8, 22 to 26. We have a more detailed example here in John chapter 9. But there's the point that Jesus indeed is the Son of God, God himself and fleshed. Great question, James. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Scripture Uncovered, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.